I'm Kyle McNulty, and you're listening to Secure Ventures, the show that follows cutting-edge founders in the cybersecurity space to understand their plights, glories, and revolutionary products. With me in this episode is Scott Schobert. Scott is the CEO of BV Systems, a network and physical security company that has been around since 1972. When we think of security today, it's easy to get caught up with the cyber elements, but BV Systems is a great reminder of the other aspects of our industry facing incredible demand. BV Systems has developed a range of interesting tools such as SafeHound, which identifies weapons like guns and knives in a more accurate and efficient manner than a metal detector. Scott does a much better job telling the full narrative in the episode. Enjoy. Scott, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you're in kind of an interesting situation in that BB Systems was actually founded by your father back in 1972, I believe. Mm-hmm. Did you always know from when you were a kid that you were going to end up working there? No, I wouldn't say that I always knew that I'd be working there. I had, you have an inkling. Um, sure. And I did start at a very young age, to be honest. I think it was sixth grade. <laughs> when I actually uh, first, my father said, uh, hey, we've got some things that need repairing. Do you want to do this? And I said, well, I don't really know how to repair things. And he said, well, let me teach you. I can show you how a, you know, a meter works and measure this resistor. And here's a soldering iron and here's how it works. Hmm. And so, so just being around electronics and things was kind of cool. So he, he taught me just kind of hands-on playing and tinkering with things. And I remember at one point we had, uh, we were, the company Berkeley Varitronics, uh, we were uh, building volumes of keypads for really audience research where people would weigh in. It may be an audience for a couple hundred people and they'd say, hey, hit choice A if you believe this, mm. or choice B if you want that. These are old school wired keypads and uh, they would break and things would happen. So he brought in a box of a couple hundred of them and he said, look, everyone you fix, I'll give you a dollar. And as a <laughs> kid, you're like, whoa, this is great. I, I I don't mind learning how to fix these things. And I was up for the challenge. You make a little extra money on the side. So to me, that was really cool. And then I think I just was growing up doing things in the business. I mean, I would come over and I'd cut the grass or paint a wall or sweep <laughs> or, you know, cutting some cables. And next thing you know, I'm soldering. And next thing you know, so I, I got to actually have hands-on experience in the company from sixth grade till you know till president through through college through undergraduate and graduate studies where I focused on you know computer science and technology and telecom and media and so I got a nice mix of everything from a practical educational side but to me sometimes right. more importantly is is the hands on dealing with real world problems and you know buying things and understanding what makes things tick and what customers want so you understand from the sales and marketing and so i think i wear a lot of hats running this company just because i've done so many different things and to be honest it's the only job i've ever had which is kind of <laughs> unique most people i talk to they're job hopping from year to year and have been right. three, four or five jobs. I've never done anything else. So this feels like this is part of my life, I guess you could say. Hmm. Um, and, and that could be looked upon as good or it could looked upon as being bad. You can kind of get stuck in your ways also when you're at one place all the time. But um, I think it's nice because the culture here that was really initiated by my father, our founder, he's still our CTO, Gary Schober was very informal. So in other words, there's not layers of management. Um, People are self-starters. They take the initiative. They like the culture. They like the challenge. And we tend to mix it up and do some diverse projects as well. 
And you can't really get that at other companies. You work for a large company, a telecom company or wireless company or Verizon or AT&T, Bell Labs, wherever. You're maybe on a smaller part of the team. So your contribution is is fairly focused here. Sure. You could kind of be a team lead. And next thing you know, you're, you're rubbing shoulders with somebody doing radio frequency design. You're rubbing shoulders with somebody that's laying out the board. You're seeing the product come alive. And I think that's kind of exciting in a small company because your input does make a difference. It makes a better product. It makes a happier customer. And, and you feel like you're making a difference. And I think that's what, what I always love. I love to share the success stories that we have as a company when we develop a product and, and you, you look back at it and say, wow, we made a difference. That's cool. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. And you touched on the, the fact that you worked at that company basically your entire life, right? You never took a, another formal job. I mean, there are some companies that really encourage their employees to go work somewhere else and then come back. So they have that additional experience to draw on those new kind of ideas you mentioned the practical education that you had. I think you said computer science and, and some mm-hmm. technology uh, related studies there in school. But I mean, what were your thoughts on maybe going and working somewhere else and, and gaining some inspiration that you might bring back to Berkeley Veritronics? I, I guess indirectly, I kind of do. And, and how do I say this? It's not necessarily working for another company, but I'm actually working more advisory capacity for other companies. Uh, I'm the CSO for uh, Cybersecurity Ventures, Cybercrime Magazine. And again, as I mentioned, I put a lot of content out for them and and work on a lot of special projects with them. So it kind of allows me to shift gears and and get into other cultures and see how they interact and work. Um, um, Advisory or senior advisory board member for Cyberlytica, they focus on the dark web. So it's kind of exciting working again, another company that's very parallel to our industry, more software and services focused, but it allows me to interact with different companies. And again, there's right. other companies with authentication, another company with, with uh, passwords, another company that focuses on um, blockchain technology, anti-key logging. So I, I do have my hands in a lot of different companies which kind of makes it exciting and it gives me a little breather. And same thing in the world of media, I often present. So I'm right. brought in, I'll speak at you know, RSA or Black Hat or some of the smaller venues, whatever, which is great. So when you're brought in as a speaker and you're given a keynote, you get to interact with people from other companies and have a great exchange and learn a lot of information. And I try to take all of that back to Berkeley Veritronics and use that and help to motivate, to innovate, and try different things. And to me, that that keeps it, the juices flowing and it keeps it exciting. It doesn't get old because too many people get bored at their jobs that I talk to here. I think as long as it's it's challenging and creative and innovation continues, it's an exciting place to work. Yeah, it's a really good point, right? And a lot of people in the security community really emphasize the value of conferences, whether Mm -hmm. it's for the presentations themselves or just meeting other folks and, and going through that mind share. And so I think that's a really important piece to touch on that even though you didn't necessarily work at another job, you still had exposure to all these different companies based on your conversations and just your involvement in the space. Yeah. Yeah. I do, I do think it's important. And one thing I've learned too, in a number, probably about 10 years ago, I, I kind of shifted more focus and I try to read a lot more. And, and when I say mm. read, I'll, I'll dissect a lot of books papers, do research in the background. And to me, it's more like a hobby. It's more for fun. I have a product idea or concept. 
I start researching it and then I try to associate, hey, here's a problem. Let's develop a niche solution for that market that we can now do something better, that we can make a change. And I'll give you a case in point uh, with all the school shootings. I'm starting reading about it. And I'm saying, isn't anybody doing anything about this? And you read about gun laws and the politicians. And, and, and again, I respect everybody's got differences of opinions, this and that. So I say, let me look at it from a innovation technology standpoint. What's being done mm-hmm. here? I didn't see a whole lot. And that's the part that scared me. I, I hear about, well, every school should have metal detectors, but metal detectors can't stop all knives and all guns. There's got to be better ways. So again, we'll talk to the engineers here, doing some research, watching videos. I came up with a concept. We call it a safe hound. We're, we just, in fact, put the press release out last week. And it's actually a ferrous detection system. So what we do is we pick up on ferrous objects and it's a portal. You basically walk through it. When you cross the beam, it knows you're actually walking through and it's got sensors on each side, like a six, six sensor. So it knows where on the body this ferrous object is. And a large ferrous object, such as a knife or a gun, will disrupt the Earth's natural magnetic force. So Hmm. we can determine on all three axes, X, Y, and Z, this disruption, and we can alert and say, therefore, you know, down in the shoe, somebody's got a knife. And then we'll light up that area and allow somebody to say quickly, hey, come over to the side. They pat them down and remove the knife, for example. Effective, low-cost tools that really tackle kind of a complicated political problem that I think will make a difference because, and it's just sad to say, we live in kind of suburbia here in New Jersey. And and in my children's high school just the other day, a kid pulled out a knife and started cutting himself, trying to kill himself. Wow. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, how did a knife get into a high school? Well, then I find out this happens every day. Knives and guns are very normal throughout America. And for, for obvious reasons, and um, probably not enough is being done. And again, to, to avoid the, the political side of things, focusing on the technology, at least we can offer a solution that if somebody feels that there's a problem in their particular school, that they could put this in and they could screen everybody coming in the door. And the key is the way we developed it, that it doesn't set off on typical um, ferrous objects. Maybe it's your mobile phone and, and mm-hmm. other items that and might trigger it off. Yeah. So what actually constitutes a, a ferrous object just in, in layman's terms? Yes. Yeah, so something that's, that's ferromagnetic. So something that could mm-hmm. be magnetized. What, what I should say, here's, here's an easy way to think of it. What would not trigger it? copper, bronze, brass, aluminum, non-ferrous materials. Hmm. And I think that's a nice differentiator because a lot of the things, maybe our watch or keys and things, those traditionally are non-ferrous. Something like a mobile phone actually does not have much metal in it. However, it does have high-powered neodymium magnets that are actually ferrous. And what is that? That's the the vibrator motor, the speaker, and the microphone. So therefore, Mm. when designing this SafeHound weapons detection system, we had to make sure that we don't false detect on a cell phone because in pretty much every school, people have cell phones (laughs) in their backpacks and purses. So you see the challenge from a technological standpoint, the feed is very, very difficult to do. Yet I think with enough R&D and testing, then we can develop a system. And honestly, to test a system like this, we actually had to buy the certified kits that they make of actual handguns and actual knives. They, they decommission them so that they actually can't fire around or anything. And they dip them in this blue plastic 
Um, and they're used as a standard to test metal detectors and other type of weapons detection systems in hmm. the world. So you have to actually meet a certain standard so you can properly test and evaluate it because you want to minimize the, the, the false positives because it's going to happen. No system is 100%. We know that from a security perspective, and especially right. in the world of cybersecurity, nothing is 100%. So I think when we're doing research and development, we want to make it as good as it can get um, within reason, obviously, without making it a, a you know a multi-million dollar system that we're trying to sell, keep it cost effective. Especially in this case, we know that the customer is a school; they have limited budgets. Right. Okay. And so, I mean, you're talking now about one of the more recent products that's been developed by the company. As you mentioned, the press release was just last week. Yep. I mean, what were the original products that were developed and sold back in 1972? I mean, clearly networking as a whole was in a, a very different place back then. Yeah. Uh, so what did that look like? Great, great question. And, and a lot of it, of course, I can't speak firsthand because I guess in 72, I was three years old, but <laughs> some of the stuff that was being developed back then, people would come to this company. This is what we're really known for. People will come to us and say, I have a problem in the world of telecom or something else. Can you design and develop this box to do X, Y, Z. What, what I can speak for is really when I was probably more uh, hands-on in the company in the 1980s. And, sure. and there we were doing stuff for um, Pepsi-Cola was a huge customer. We mm. developed a number of different sensors that went into vending machines. And it was kind of interesting. What they, they did was they said, we want to know if the door is open, if the coin changer is jammed, if the product is running low, we want to have a way that we could be alerted so the Pepsi machine is always filled and ready to go to sell soda, as opposed to maybe the competitor Coke machine or whoever next to it. So they always would have that advantage. And we did it by wired systems. We had a modem that would dial out. We did carrier current where we used the existing electrical infrastructure in a building to actually send communication signals. So a whole host of means and even some of the earlier uh, wireless systems. And we built 600 systems, did an R&D project and went to Sandin in Japan where they actually tested it and get all the kinks out. What, what's cool about that, and again, being in the same company, this is where I can easily relate. We did all that work back in the 80s. They still are a customer today. How many years <laughs> later, decades later, they're buying our little handheld tool that's used for installing cellular modems. Again, where? In vending machines so they can, can talk remotely. And all that information could be sent back. And to me, that's kind of fascinating. What other company could say they have that incredible tie over decades with the same customer base? That I love. That to me is exciting because you have things to point to where you've worked hard, you've proved yourself as a company, provided innovative solutions that made your customer a lot of money. Guess what? When they like that, they will come back to you and reward you with additional business for years to come. And I think that's an important part of business. We're a word of mouth business. If we work hard, we do a good job, we get work. People will say, hey, I heard you guys developed this technology for NASA, the New York Times or Pepsi-Cola, as I mentioned. We're interested in something a little different. Can you guys take this on? Would you be interested in this? Sure, let's take a look. And, and I think as a company, what we strive to do is you bring us your entire problem and we give you an entire solution. You don't have to worry about, well, I got to go get a cable wired or design the packaging or write the software or figure out the radio frequency component. We take care of the whole thing. And then a lot of our customers come back to us and say, wow, I like the way you guys did this. 
can you build the product for us? And we've gotten many contracts over the years where it started out as a concept for a single instrument or a prototype that we built thousands of something for this particular customer because we delivered not just on the design, but even on the production side. And it's hard to do, to, to do everything as a small company, be agile, be innovative and not make mistakes. It, it is hard, but I, I think we've had the wonderful privilege of, oh, we're almost at 50 years, next year's our 50th year anniversary. We don't have to go out and borrow money and go to a bank and do all these other things or get you know, VC funding and raise funding and do all these other things where we have to answer to shareholders we can kind of control our own destiny and we take R&D and fund it back into our company and develop new innovative products. And yeah, they're not all home runs, but as long as you get one home run every once in a while, you do really well and you build on other successes. And I think that's important. And you also learn so much from your mistakes, past mistakes. And we we hear all these different adages all the time, but <laughs> it really does teach you a lot. And learning from others, I mean, I, I analyze closely Apple Computer, and and that's no mystery. I think millions of other people do too. You look at the most yeah. successful company and say, what makes this company so successful, so profitable? And oftentimes, it even starts at the packaging when you take it out of the box. So what I've done is spent a lot of time and effort sitting down, even with packaging companies when they unpack our test equipment. And, and again, it's a very different thing from selling millions of, of mobile phones that are hundreds of dollars to maybe some of our tools, maybe $10,000, $20,000 and upwards, but it's just as important. The, the perception and the reality of it is important for customers to get the sense of. And uh, having that hands-on customer support, I think is important. Not all these automated systems, that's what a lot of companies have shifted to. Why? Very efficient. Frustrating right. part is you can't talk to a person, at least from my perspective. So I, I've, I've avoided these automated systems. I try to keep things hands-on. Oftentimes people call up, they'll actually talk to the engineer that designed it. That's unique. That doesn't happen at Apple Computer, probably ever or much. <laughs> so, <laughs> so running, a, running a, a company very non-traditional actually has a lot of advantages in this particular tech space with, with cyber and technology and innovation and, and wireless booming. Right. And walk me through the business model in just a bit more detail, because I think I'm hearing two kind of distinct segments that maybe overlap a little bit. It sounds like, especially in the early days, you were maybe very contract driven. So developing custom solutions for customers like Pepsi, for example, where they say, hey, we have this problem, we need a solution developed. And now it seems like, and again, I could be wrong here, but it seems like you've pivoted more towards uh, developing products that you sell to a much larger audience and especially uh, products that are at a lower, kind of more affordable mm -hmm. price point for different organizations. Um, yeah. I'm sure a lot of those products stemmed from these different contracts as well, but what does this kind of relationship and strategy look like? Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and probably in a, in a general sense, when I think back to the 80s, the 90s, the even early 2000s, it was very common that a company would have a budget and they would do R&D and come to you and they would fund you to develop technology. Um, it seems like for the most part, those days have really changed when <laughs> everything gets shrunk down, um, highly integrated, uh, more consumer off the shelf. And really the model of what the government has done has driven a lot of this. So uh, USDOD oftentimes will first go to a, a COTS, consumer off the shelf, 
type of product, and then they'll modify it to make it more secure. So now they're not spending millions upon millions of dollars to buy something simple that's already been perfected and mass produced. They just add the security onto it. And to some degree, that's the model that we've done. So we've backed up instead of, in the past, we've defined and you know, designed software defined radios that actually will have a, a high speed FPGA and, and dual core DSP that's demodulating Wi Fi packets. Pretty amazing stuff for its time. Yet I can buy a $5 chip now that will have all of that integrated in it. So you could spend a million dollars designing it yourself, or you could buy a $5 off the chip and then add layers of security and control it and a display and a housing and packaging. Which would you rather choose? Well, the first one to spend a year with a whole team and millions of dollars, it, it's not cost effective anymore. And I think that model has really kind of changed the way things are designed. So many, many companies are doing that model. And I think we've shifted more toward that too. It allows us to get product to market faster, cheaper, more features, lighter, more price sensitive to the, the end user. And again, being most of our customers are US DOD customers and prisons um, and some universities, price is very important to them. So if we can get there cheaper, faster, better, we're going to win every time. We're going to sell them a lot more units. So our model has kind of shifted away from that contract design of the days of the past. Not that we don't like it. It's just really, really hard to manage. And it's really hard to find because companies yep. don't have budgets like they used to, whereas they're more product oriented. Think about it. You and I, probably if we need a solution, what are we going to do? We're going to go on Amazon. We're going to hit the easy button. We want the free shipping. We want the convenience. We don't want to wait three months, six months, a year till something's designed to meet our needs. And right. that model is permeated, I think, really culture and businesses around the globe. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with the the different trends that you're describing, right? I mean, especially with competition as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, the more players there are in the market that have these kind of skill sets, the less you're going to be able to get away with those kind of long contracts and custom developed sure. solution when there might be another product out there that has uh, comparable features that might kind of get by for the, the necessary use case there. Um, so again, you just described this kind of massive strategic shift that occurred over the last few decades. Uh, you took over as CEO in 1999. I mean, was that already on top of your mind when you kind of took over? And what other strategic initiatives did you have in mind when you actually took the helm? You know, I think it actually happened a little earlier than I thought. Um, I think in a sense, my father's always challenged me and groomed me uh, for continuing on the legacy of the company, which I think is, is a wonderful thing that I'm, I'm always very proud and humbled by. Um, although that being said, it does add a level of stress and pressure. To be sure. Yeah, you, you're never going to perform as the founder of the company. Um, do I have the same passion and the same emotion um, for the business to continue on? I think so. But I can say this, I, I've, I've actually purposefully shifted our focus toward the security realm because we were doing more traditional um, wireless telecom and, and test equipment for the carriers. Our, our focus customers, when you go back into the, the 90s, was really the Verizons, the Nextels, the T-Mobiles, the AT&Ts. We were selling boxes that were used to set up uh, cell sites and towers and measure 
all kinds of radio frequency measurements, very specific to build out the cellular networks. What's happened as we got into the world of 4G, fourth generation, and now even in the fifth, G, fifth generation, 5G as all our phones are starting to tout, less and less test equipment is being used to actually build out and model that because software has gotten so good. They're actually using predictive anal analytics in the software model. So really decades ago, when all of this drive study data was collected at particular frequency bands, they can now skew the models for higher frequencies. So when you hear something back in the old days was, you know, in the cellular band and 800 megahertz, now they're testing stuff for 4G and 5G up at the 3.4 gigahertz. Guess what? They can plug the algorithms in and they can make the adjustments and do predictive analysis and say, hey, our coverage is going to be higher frequency. Coverage is going to be much smaller. Therefore, we have to have a lot more small cell towers put up in a tighter geographical area to maintain the throughput and, and, and the data rates. So the sciences of, of things in engineering and radio frequencies has improved so much that it actually kind of hurt our industry. So therefore, I tended to look at the company. I didn't see enough of a future just building test equipment. We still do. We build receivers, transmitters, power meters in the industry. However, we've pivoted looking at the security side of things. And I really identified a lot of key areas that were just lacking from a wireless and security perspective. And there's not that many companies out there that have true expertise in understanding the problems, the vulnerabilities, which, which naturally leads into the world of cybersecurity. So to me, it's kind of the perfect storm that that paved our future when we shifted out of that design only mentality to products. It was first products for other companies. Now products really branded by us, designed by us for a larger uh, audience. It, it, it's really worked out well, I have to say. Hmm. Right. And again, that ties back to your kind of broader strategy piece as well, and, and just kind of keeping up with these different trends. Uh, but I mean, one trend in particular that it seems like at least from the the research I've done that you kind of stayed out of was the the dot com era and everything moving online, right? But to my knowledge, BBS stayed more focused on kind of the the physical and and network components. How did you manage to stay focused through that time period when money was just flowing into that space? Yeah, I think I think. We did it in a couple of ways. We focused again on our area of expertise. And, and sometimes if you get too far out of your wheelhouse, you can get in trouble. You can't be so great sure. at everything. So I, I, again, I try to keep to our core competency, even though we, we provide such a broad range of products. I mean, we're, we're developing a ground-based timing systems for Global Star. We've been working for them for probably well over 15 years, getting close to 20 years. Uh, and we just had one of our largest contracts we were awarded last year that we're just finishing up on as we close this year out and, and now going to hopefully get into some other business with them. But again, who would think of a small company providing timing solutions to a giant satellite company? Very <laughs> interesting. But again, it ties nicely into our core. We're not examining packets. We're not focusing in, like you mentioned, the dot-com side. Now, do I understand that industry? Yes. Do I see some of these industries pop up like a bubble? Absolutely. I love them. Mm. Those are the companies that personally I'll invest in as an investor, perhaps, to follow the technology and the trends and understand it. But if we really can't do anything that's going to bring value to the table with innovation and products, we're going to try to keep our distance. It doesn't mean we're going to explore other areas. Um, I, we, we do a lot of stuff in the world of uh, electric vehicles. 
a lot of people look at us and say, well, wait a minute, I thought you were a security company. Well, yeah, but we're also building testers that are used to find out where do you install the chargers and which carrier has the best coverage at that given spot. And a low cost tool under $1,000, nobody has that. But yet they could turn our tool on and look and say, wow, oh, I see that AT&T actually has better coverage here than Verizon. Let me sign up this cellular modem right here. So when the back end, when this electric vehicle charger is plugged in by John Smith, the, the appropriate billing happens and electric and this and that and gets credit to the right account. So that's a coverage issue. That's important, but it doesn't require a traditional drive test study tool that we normally would sell for ten dollars or $15,000. It's a simple technician tool. It's a go, no, go, turn it on, measure the levels, make a decision, boom, move on. And that saves companies time. It saves them money and allows for rapid build out for the entire infrastructure of electric chargers that have to be done. Then I read about all the stuff that the Biden administration is doing now, they're pushing billions of dollars to rapidly get this infrastructure built out. Guess what that means? That means business for us. We've been in this <laughs> electric vehicle space now, building stuff for about 10 years. We didn't sell a whole lot in the beginning, but I believed in it. I said, it's coming. Um, it's not here yet, but it's coming. Now, I think it's really coming to fruition where people are talking about Hey, that electric car looks cool. Hey, I want a Mustang or I want this or I want that, but electric. So what does that tell you? Now the rest of the infrastructure has got to be finished and built out. There's about what? 1% of the vehicles are, are electric vehicles now? Not that many. So mm -hmm. huge potential, huge upside when you analyze and follow industries closely and then develop supporting products for that industry niche. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, electric vehicles in particular is an area where it seems like the the potential has been, I guess, more publicized at this point. Mm -hmm. And there's the expectation now that uh, with like the California policies, for example, and the number of electric vehicles that are supposed to be on the road um, and the different manufacturers. And it's interesting to just hear you speak to that discrepancy as well in terms of like only 1% of cars on the road are electric vehicles when there's all this a crazy market activity as well around some of these manufacturers like Rivian, for example, um, mm -hmm. and the, I guess, expectation of, of the growth there. So certainly to your point, to get in, I guess, 10 years or so before that realization for everyone else leaves you well positioned as a market leader, and then obviously mm -hmm. better positioned for the, the government opportunities that, that come from that as well and, and all those major contracts. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I also I've learned too when you're staying when you're in one company your whole life, you also learn to be patient. And that and that's <laughs> hard to see. So many companies they want to rush something to market, a product, a service, a solution, and they're a startup and they're spending so much time chasing the money and looking down the road how much they're going to make and get people to invest and trying to sell them on it, keep the shareholders happy. You're doing all this stuff, but you can't focus on innovation. Mm. It, it sure is nice when you could say, okay, here's the problem. Let me think with a clear head. Let me bring in a, a small, focused, crack team, multidisciplinary engineers that can think outside the box to look at it a completely different way. And when you do that, sometimes novel things will, will suddenly surface and you sit there and go, wow, to the point where we're working on a new concept and it's still very fuzzy in my head and some of the engineers' head. But what, what's probably the main reason that people are hesitant to jump on the bandwagon and go buy an electric vehicle. Probably range, range anxiety, right? 
Sure. Well, what if I go 200 miles and now I run out of juice and there's nowhere to plug in? So we're developing some portable solutions that can quickly plug into a vehicle and give you another 10 or 20 miles. Hmm. Sounds crazy, but it actually kind of makes sense. We did a huge project that ended up actually in Russia years ago it was for Qualcomm. And these were portable power stations that were used at um, cell sites in these remote areas and had to have all these unique characteristics and things. And we designed them, we developed them. We really didn't want to, but we had to because it was part of a larger contract of our, our cellular test equipment. We learned a lot about portable batteries and charging and so on and so forth. So applying, again, some things we've really got expertise on the past, understanding the electrical vehicle market and looking at it from the standpoint of what's the problem, range anxiety, what will help soften the blow if somebody buys that? They could take a box, drop it in their trunk. Hey, they're going on a trip. And if they can't find a charger, they could always plug in, top off the battery, give you give yourself an extra 10 or 20 miles till you can make it to that charger. Those type of things where we're um, a part of a solution, I think it's kind of fun because you get to really delve in and, and see what the problem is or the frustration is that consumers have. And their, their, their hesitation to, to purchase things. Well, now, again, we could be part of that solution or help along the way. We're not the total solution. It doesn't solve the problem of, of range anxiety. But when they get caught stuck on the side of the road and everybody's driving by and their fossil fuels laughing at them, they, they <laughs> can pull this out, plug it in, charge it up and, and get home, maybe at least to the charger and, and back in business. Hmm. And so, I mean, you mentioned just a couple minutes ago, this idea around staying focused, right? And understanding that area of expertise. So when I think about the kind of history behind BBS and how that ties into electric vehicle kind of chargers on demand, what was that decision like to say, we have the kind of manufacturing or product development experience in this space enough that this makes sense to go ahead and pursue? How did you kind of grapple with that decision? Well, sometimes it's just your gut. Sometimes sure. it's also having a, um, a customer base established. And that's what a lot of companies don't realize. The, the cost for acquisition for a new customer can be unbelievable. Um, now, again, what did I mention before? For 10 years, we've been selling to the electric vehicle uh, charger installers with our right. handheld tool. So we've got an established customer base. So we, we you know the trade shows, you know the customers, you know, the customer's frustrations because they'll call using the test equipment and what their anxiety is, what their point, pain points are. So in a sense, we're, we understand the market really well. And then when you see a very focused problem in the market that you don't see anybody truly addressing, then it's time to move in there if you have a, a viable solution. And mm -hmm. you test the waters. You try it out. You develop something. You put it in customers' hands and you get the feedback. If that sticks then you take it to the next level. And that's often what we do. It's hard to, to, um, to do everything again as a small company, if we're General Motors or Apple Computer or whatever. Yeah, you're going to have thousands of customers and trials and surveys and all that other stuff. <laughs> you can't afford to do that because what, what does that take? That takes time, which takes money. Here, it's learning from your past, not just successes, but your failures, which also I think helps define you. And helps you look forward and say, you know what? I remember we spent months banging our heads against the wall with this problem, not going down that path. I'm going to do it this way. Huh. I'm going to do take this, this, and this 
path because it's going to get me there more faster and it's going to it's going to ultimately turn out into a successful product. So I think that that's important and and not being afraid to partner and work with certain key companies. I don't have fear when I'm developing a product to pick the phone up and call the CEO or VP of another company um, and say, hey, I'm developing something. We'd love to talk to you guys about this. I, in fact, I just did that in the past week. And actually, I got a response within 24 hours. I was almost <laughs> dumbfounded. So sometimes that's okay. Don't be afraid. Too many people hesitate and they don't take that chance. Doesn't mean you're always going to get an answer or even a response. I, I've been turned down probably more than I've gotten the, a call back or an email back or anything else. And that's okay too, because people are busy and I have to respect it or they're not interested. But at least I was trying. To me, you have to try all aspects. And I think that's that's one of the things when you're when you're running a company, empower not just yourself to do these decisions, get your employees to kind of reach outside the box and come up with different ideas. Some of the best ideas ever, some of our employees that have been here for years are saying, hey, did you ever think about this? And sometimes I'm looking at them saying, what are you talking about as a product? <laughs> and then you walk away and you come back the next day and you say, you know, I was thinking about that last night. Actually, that idea makes sense. What if we targeted it this way or packaged it this way or we added mm. this to it? or you know? And then suddenly we, they get excited because you're listening to them. You bring something to the table and suddenly the product grows to something ultimately that somebody really needs and wants and demands. Then, then you're ecstatic. You're saying, wow, this is, this is better than anything else. Um, when, when you feel that excitement, that, that energy is what I think keeps small companies and innovative companies going forward, moving ahead, not giving up and just accepting the same old status quo and yeah, nobody wants that or whatever. You got to take the chances. I, I think being a risk taker is part of running a business. If you can't take risks, you probably can't survive because there is competition. Somebody can always do it faster, better, and cheaper. But if you could do the culmination of all those things, get it to market and get the brand out there and the name, and you've got a reputation that you can build on and a customer base, you have a lot better chance of success. Um, and, and those type of things I try to always leverage to our advantage so we can have success because it, it, it's it's not fun designing things, investing in things and not seeing it to come to fruition and just ends up on a, a scrap pile or in a dumpster somewhere. I don't <laughs> like that. I like to see the product, touch it, feel it. And more importantly, I like to look at the customer and hear the customer's response. Good, bad or ugly. I don't care. I said, I welcome it. Be critical. Tell us we did a poor packaging job or the screen is wrong or something's wrong. We're going to fix it. We're here to fix it and make it better. When you have that, that motivates you, drives you to keep improving and learn from your mistakes. Yeah, I think you touched on an important point there, which is around the shared customer base, right? Mm -hmm. And that, sure, maybe electric vehicle chargers seem a little out of the ordinary compared to the rest of the product line. But because you already have those relationships with the electric vehicle uh, companies and some of these different partners and that, that whole ecosystem, then you're able to meet your potential customers, go through that feedback cycle and make sure that you were developing something that was catered to these needs. And again, having those relationships um, let you have that, that kind of leg up going through there. And so again, yeah. where the dot-com era might not have had that same kind of overlap the electric vehicle systems did. And so those customer relationships allowed you to be more successful going through there. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and if I think back even to the, like the nineties, the um, 
the dot-com era, I think of a company like Cisco, perhaps, who was well-known there. Now they're known globally. Those were the companies I was buying their stock for and I right. believed in. Um, it's not the, but, but yet at the same time, I wasn't missing out because it was such a big company. Guess what? For two years, they were our largest customer. We were actually recommended for some of our, our WiMAX gear on Cisco's website. For our oh. Wi-Fi gear, we were the recommended company. There was ourselves, Fluke, and I forget the third company that were actually recommended devices to go buy if you're building out Wi-Fi networks. To me, that was the most flattering thing in the world. Hmm. So sometimes companies that are doing really well in the space, you, you also want to associate with them. So if your products and you, you put them in front of them and they become the adopters of it, they're your best sales force. Having Cisco branding something for you is probably worth a whole lot more than me spending millions of dollars trying to advertise and go to every trade show to convince people to buy our product. Well, I don't have to. Cisco says go buy it. What, what better endorsement do you have than that? So I think sometimes, again, that's where relationships and networking and building a strong customer, loyal customer base, that pays off. I, I often will reflect back when I have a customer call me, and I've had this happen many times, and I always kind of laugh. I said, these would make great stories in a book. They'll say, hey, Scott, do you remember me? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I do. Man, I haven't heard from you in 20 years. Yeah, well, I left... <laughs> You know, Nextel back then, and then I was in a startup and I left there. I was at Qualcomm, but now I've got a new company I just founded. Well, I'm the CEO now. I used to be a drive, you know, study technician when you guys helped me out in the past, but now I'm calling the shots. I want to bring you in here. We want something designed. Guess what? The sales cycle and, and to convince somebody that you can do it, that's all pushed aside. You've already paid your dues 20 years ago and they came <laughs> back to you. So, there's credibility there because we're still here. We're still developing products. We're still servicing customers. We're still having success stories. I think when you have that magic brand and formula, you can keep building upon that. I feel bad for companies that are starting out on day one today. As a startup to, to, to try to do something in this space, in the wireless space, the cybersecurity space, telecom space, it's tough. There's a lot of big guys out there that have deep pockets that have years of experience and the relationships that are established for you to start at ground zero and start doing that. It can be done, but man, it is really, really, really hard. Mm -hmm. So to pivot the conversation a little bit, right? Sure. In the last 10 years, it seems like you've become significantly more active in just the broader cybersecurity ecosystem. So mm -hmm. whether that's as a freelance writer you have your own podcast. I think you have several of your own podcasts. You're a commentator on Cybercrime Magazine. I'm sure there's plenty of others as well. I know you've rattled off a, a little list before we started recording as well. I mean, what caused this shift to become such an active contributor in the cybersecurity just ecosystem? And then which of those different uh, avenues have you found to be kind of the most valuable for you? I, I kind of go in the back of my mind. And there's always like a point in your life where something is kind of transformed or changed. And for me, what I always, the, the story I recall is kind of set clear as day. It, it was back a number of years and it was right after the target breaches. That was back yep. in 2013. I was doing some uh, interviews on Bloomberg TV, went well, got off, Went across the street. I just sat down and all my energy was exhausted. And I ordered a martini <laughs> just to kind of 
to clear my head. And I got a phone call, which was kind of strange because not many people have my mobile number. And it was the Associated Press at the time. And they said, hey, we're doing a story and we heard your company was hacked. And I just went, my, 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 my just kind of stomach dropped. And I was like, what? Is that true? And I was like, well, yeah. I said, how'd you hear about it? And they're like, well, it doesn't matter, but we're doing this feature article on it and, and da, 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 and it's going to go out nationally. And would you be willing to go on the record and talk about it? And I was like, geez, what am I, an idiot? Am I going to go on the record and say, yeah, here's a, here's a, a wireless security company that's been in business <laughs> for all these years and they were breached. What are they? They don't know what they're doing. And I said, well, you know what? I will, if you allow me <laughs> to tell the story and share my misgivings and my misfortunes so that other people don't make the same mistake I do. And it's going to take a little humility on my part to admit the stupidness and mistakes that I made, but I'm, but I'm willing to do it. So anyway, I had that interview. And afterwards, I sat back and thought about it. And I said, geez, well, it's obviously out there, but it, I kind of felt good sharing the mistakes I made, but what I've learned from it and helping others, so they don't keep repeating the foolishness that I made. And it was with regard to passwords and mismanaging things, this and that, and so on and so forth. So, and then a couple of people talked to me and said, geez, you, you know, your story is kind of interesting. You should really write a book. I was like, write a book. I said, well, I'm not a writer. I don't know how to write. I was terrible in English. <laughs> it's, I think I took one creative writing course in college and it was kind of a crazy story. It was, I think 30, girls in the class. I was the only guy and the professor <laughs> was new to computers and he came over and he's sweating bullets and he goes, Scott, I got all these girls and they're all these fancy writers. And he goes, I'm a writer, but I don't know how to work a computer. And I said, guess what? I know how to work computers. I'll help you and the girls learn how to work on the computers. If you could teach me how to write. And he goes, <laughs> fair deal. You'll ace this course. And sure enough, I did. And I learned a lot about writing. I'll be honest. I, I wasn't a great writer after that, but I learned a lot about it. Um, and then I decided, well, you know, I'm going to tell my story in a book and I'm going to call it Hacked Again. And it's basically going to be the, the, the true story of the mistakes I made and what I learned in the process of having the credit card compromised and the debit card, my Twitter account hacked, receiving repeated DDoS attacks. We had $65,000 stolen from our checking account. It became a federal investigation. The story goes on and on. And it, it's still going on to this day. But the, <laughs> wow. the, more, the more I educate and share with people and teach people and encourage people to do things safely, the more I got a target on my back. And that kind of got me into writing. And, I, and it took about two years to write Hacked Again. Got a lot of help from my brother. I bounce a chapter off him and say, oh, this is terrible. You got to write <laughs> this. And I don't think you meant that. And the sentence structure, this is spelled wrong. And, you know, so you're back and forth, back and forth. I wrote probably an extra five chapters that we had to dump that just didn't follow the, the main thesis. Got it all organized and finally got it after two years out and, and started selling. And guess what? People like to hear about it. And they said, this is great. Can you come in and, and, and speak about the subject to my company? Would you give a keynote? And next thing I know, I'm getting hired to give keynotes and speak about things and do book signings. And you start to say, you know what? This works very nice parallel to the business. Here we are talking about wireless security, cybersecurity. My customers have titles with, you know, threat advisor and cybersecurity, da, da, da. So they're all tied in. So it's our customer base is reading this. They're asking for it. I'm educating them on it. We're developing tools. This is really interesting. So that, of course, led to a, a more broad and general 
um, audience, people asking, a lot more small business owners asking me about, hey, I heard of this thing about ransomware. Hey, I heard about this. Can you come in and talk about it? And should I get cybersecurity insurance? Could you come? I did a series of lunch and learns over a couple of past few years, educating accountants and realtors and, and bankers and so on and so forth about cybersecurity insurance. And um, next thing I know, I started writing cybersecurity is everybody's business because again, it started to branch out and it's affecting every company. Right. That, that worked out very successful. And then the third book was um, Senior Cyber. I saw an underserved community there where um, not many people spend time or can speak to that audience in simplistic terms that don't make them feel you know, ignorant or something like that and try to empower them. So they use technology and, and embrace it and not be afraid of scammers and, and, and hackers and cyber criminals. So I, I launched Senior Cyber. Now I'm working on a Cyber Chaperone, which is tailored a little bit more toward parents helping their teens with cybersecurity and social media and things of that nature. Hmm. So it's a lot of fun. I'm, I'm learning in the process, honestly. I think that's one thing I've learned about writing. It's, and again, it, I didn't just start cold turkey writing. I should say that I have written hundreds of blogs and then started to find that you start getting hired to write blogs and then <laughs> writing an editorial piece for Fortune magazine. And, and, you know, so, so I have slowly been doing more and more writing, but writing does take time. It takes effort. Um, I brought my brother in on book number two and book number three, and he's helping with book number four as, as the co-author. And that mm -hmm. certainly helps because he is a gifted writer. And we just did our, our first episode on Friday of, of Cyber Coast to Coast, a podcast. And it, it's kind of exciting to be able, even though he's on the West Coast, outside of LA, um, and I'm over here in New Jersey, New York, we, we both have uh, kind of differences of opinion on technology. So it's interesting when we talk coming from a tech family. And of course, he is, he's a partner. He's in the family business also, just on the other coast. So um, he, he gives good insight, I think, into things. He knows how I think, but he also is independent of how I think. And so we disagree a little bit, a little bit of sibling rivalry, maybe. So it makes for a nice topical discussion on technology and cybersecurity and things of that sort. So um, looking for, we only did one episode so far. That was kind of our pilot episode that uh, just went up and uh, looking forward to doing another episode uh, end of this week. Awesome. Where can people just find out more about all the different things that you're working on? I know you have your, your personal website. There's obviously the BVS website, mm -hmm. uh, but again, there's all these different things, whether it's books or podcasts or uh, magazine articles, what's the, the best place for people to follow, follow along with you? Yeah, so, well, certainly BV Systems has all of our product stuff, white papers, e-papers, all that. And it does spill over into a lot of the cybersecurity since we kind of view it the way wireless security and cybersecurity kind of cross paths at the intersection of it. That's where BV Systems is. And then I also have a dedicated website. It's just simply my name, scottschober.com. And that's a little bit more focus of cybersecurity only with the, the books uh, tips that you could download, uh, media appearances, uh, links to to all the, the the videos, and I've done. I think I counted up a while back, a little more than a thousand interviews or something. So the list is going on. Wow. And so it, it's pretty exciting um, when you can kind of interact with so many different people. And I regularly present, mostly virtual, but I'm I'm pretty much doing a presentation every week or two somewhere somehow. Webinars. I'm on Twitter and, and Clubhouse and LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram and all, all the different social media platforms, which takes a lot of time. More of that I tend to do 
offline when I'm home at night or something. And uh, it's just hard to do it during the day. There's too much going on with stuff. But, yeah. but I think I think the, the education side, just constantly consuming things and learning. I'm learning a ton of things from other experts. And, and that's why, like, like, even when I was checking out some of the other great guests that that you had on, and Bruce Schneier and uh, Troy Hunt and Eric Cole and others. These are colleagues that I learned from because I watch them at shows and listen to them and learn from them. I listen to their podcasts or their blogs and their tweets and things. So to me, it's very important in the field of cyber because it's changing almost daily that you're constantly absorbing and learning from other experts. If you can't do that, it's hard for you yourself to share and educate others. So to me, that that's one of the, the fascinating parts about it. Never just being happy. Like some people, they go to school and get their two-year degree, four-year degree, their master's, whatever it is. And they're, they're like, they're done with education and they just get a job. To me, this is all about learning. Every single day, I learn something new. That's what I can bring to the table. And that's what helps keep our, our company thriving, which helps keep me motivated and innovating and sharing things and teaching other people. Uh, I think you got to have a passion and love for it. If you don't, it, it's hard to wake up every morning and do this because it, it's it's hard work. It is. It's tiring. I go home typically, my typical day, I usually get home about 6.30. I'm only 10 minutes from the office. I collapse on the couch and I play one game of Candy Crush and usually take a 10-minute nap. Then I get going again. So, but But you need something to keep you going, keep you busy, and keep you engaged. And that's important. Candy Crush downloads are going to skyrocket after that remark. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's awesome. Again, it's been great hearing your story. And um, it's interesting to hear just how the company strategy has evolved as well as your own uh, kind of strategy around just being involved within the, the broader cybersecurity market. And uh, again, as such an active contributor, it's exciting to hear about all these new things that you're working on and, and how it all ties together under a single theme. The just last question I have for you, uh, are you currently hiring? Should folks go ahead and, and reach out if they're aspiring to develop some new wireless technologies? Oh, absolutely. And my, my theory is we're always hiring. I actually just yep. hired somebody a couple of weeks ago, but I'm still looking to fulfill a couple of different positions. So certainly reach out to the company and I'd be happy to share that information. Um, on both our websites, there's forms, as usual, you could fill it out. And it usually is redirected to myself, especially on scottschober.com. And it's actually me that answers it. It's not a robot or not a, a, another person that I have assigned. So it's kind of unique. And uh, it makes it hard because I, I get about a thousand emails per day, but wow. I actually try to go through them. It, it's painstakingly time consuming, <laughs> um, but, but you got to do it. That's part of business is, is being there for your audience, for your customers, for your employees, uh, it make, makes a difference. Hmm. Well, again, Scott, thank you so much for your time and just sharing your story here. Yeah, th thanks so much. And uh, tell everybody out there to, to stay safe. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you can write to me at kyle at secureventures.io. I'm Kyle McNulty and you've been listening to Secure Ventures.